0: Good morning. As Tony has said, this morning we come to the penultimate study in our series on the Acts of the Apostles. And the subject before us today is the rejection of Christianity based on chapters 21 to 26. Now, if that has just induced a sinking feeling in you, You can imagine how I felt when the email arrived on behalf of the ministry committee. There's a lot of ground to cover, and our approach, therefore, will have to be a broad one. We won't take time to read anything specific, but if you want to follow events as they unfold, if you turn to Acts chapter 21, page 930 in the Pew Bible. And broadly, when you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you will see that there are two major influences which are always present. The first of these influences is Judaism. And there are two aspects of Judaism which stand out in particular. The first of these is zeal. When Paul wrote what was probably his first letter, to the Galatians, he referred to his previous way of life in Judaism. And he described how he was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And he remembered how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And the other aspect of Judaism which stands out is the attitude of the Jews to non-Jews, commonly referred to as the Gentiles, but sometimes, confusingly, as just Greeks. The Gentiles didn't believe in the God of Israel. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. To the Jewish mind, they were synonymous with idolatry, and immorality, and they were a threat to the status of the Jews as a holy nation chosen by God. The Gentiles should be avoided as much as possible. And these two aspects of Judaism, zeal for the traditions of their fathers and hostility to the Gentiles, are vital components in Luke's story. Then the second major influence in the story is the influence of the Roman administration. Again, there are two aspects of this. First, there is the attitude of the Romans to the Jews, to this intense, complex race of people who were so devoted to their religion. And over the previous 50 years or so, the Romans had granted a number of special privileges to the Jewish religion. As a result, Judaism enjoyed the status of a licensed religion. The other aspect is the attitude of the Romans to a new phenomenon. Little groups of people were springing up all over the place, claiming to be followers of Jesus of Nazareth the same Jesus of Nazareth whom the Romans had crucified 30 years previously. These people were first known as followers of the way, but now increasingly they were becoming known as Christians. And one of their strange beliefs was that this Jesus had been raised from the dead. And just to make things more confusing for the Romans the beliefs that these people had seemed to come out of Judaism. And yet they attracted the fury of many of the Jews and their leaders. And so throughout the book of Acts, on the one hand, we have the Jews and their implacable opposition to the gospel. And on the other hand, the Roman authorities not fully understanding what they were dealing with, but nevertheless in a remarkable way acting as a restraining influence on this Jewish hostility. You might also notice as you read through the book of Acts the way in which Luke constructs his story. Because Luke brings before us a whole series of dramatic Confrontations between those proclaiming and defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and those representing other worldviews. These confrontations provide the setting for a large number of speeches, and Luke uses the content of these speeches and the reaction to them as part of his narrative. And if you look at these speeches, from chapter 2 right through to chapter 20 you will see that there is a sequence a sequence which is repeated in chapters 21 to 26 and so from chapter 2 right through to the end of chapter 7 with every one of the speeches recorded there the setting is Jewish the audience is Jewish and the content is Jewish. And then chapter 8 begins with these words, and Saul was there giving approval to his, that is Stephen's, death. And with the entry of Saul of Tarsus onto the stage, things begin to change. In chapter 9, we read of his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And in that same chapter, we read the Lord's words to Ananias. This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Up until now, the message of the gospel has been directed exclusively at the Jews. Now there will be a shift in emphasis. Attention will turn more and more to the Gentiles. And no one could be fitted better for this role than Saul of Tarsus, because he came from those two traditions that we have already mentioned. Saul, or Paul as he now comes to be known, was a Jew. He was also a Roman citizen. And this dual identity will have a crucial role to play in the life and ministry of Paul. In certain circumstances, he will draw on his Jewish heritage. And in other circumstances, he will use his Roman credentials. And as the audiences change from Jew to Gentile, so the geography of the story changes. Up until this point, all the action has been in Jerusalem. But by the time we get to chapter 11, we find ourselves in Syrian Antioch, where the church had a large number of Gentile converts And it's from there in chapter 13 that Paul takes the gospel into Asia and then on on into Europe. And we have followed him in recent weeks on his missionary journeys. And right through to the end of chapter 20, Luke brings before us a further series of encounters and speeches. But now for the most part, these involve Gentile settings And Gentile audiences. And now where we take up the story, in chapter 21, we are back to square one. We are back in Jerusalem. And in these closing chapters, Luke brings before us five more set-piece confrontations between Paul and his opponent's And in these chapters, we see a reoccurrence of many of the themes which we have seen in the earlier chapters. So midway through chapter 21, we find Paul in the temple in Jerusalem. Some Jews from Asia assumed that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile or Gentiles into that part of the temple where it was forbidden for a Gentile to be. And they drag him from the temple precincts. In the ensuing uproar, Paul has to be rescued by Roman troops. The commander of the Roman garrison is a man called Claudius Lysias. And although he has just escaped being lynched by the mob... Paul asks Lysias for permission to speak to them, and permission is granted. And this is the first of these five confrontations. And Paul begins to address the crowd, just as Peter had addressed the crowd outside the temple in chapters 2 and 3. And as was the case in chapters 2 and 3, Here, too, the audience is Jewish. Like Peter, Paul emphasizes his Jewishness. He speaks to them in Aramaic. He declares at the outset, I am a Jew. He reiterates his Jewishness in his birth, in his upbringing in Jerusalem, in his schooling at the feet of Gamaliel, In his thorough training in the law of our fathers and in his zeal for God, he was just as jealous or as zealous as any of them. And up to this point, everything Paul has said has been Jewish-centered. And then he tells them of his encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And just as Paul's conversion in chapter 9 is a pivotal event in the acts of the apostles as a whole, now it is the turning point of Paul's speech. And although he doesn't get the chance, Paul must have longed to tell this crowd what he wrote to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, we read these words. He, that is Christ, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Now those words were written to believers. and Here Paul is speaking to unbelievers. And when he tells them of the Lord's command, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That does it. All that zeal and all that loyalty to the traditions of their fathers and all that distrust of the Gentiles erupts. and The cry goes up, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Paul is rescued by the Romans a second time. And he's taken into the barracks. Lysias follows standard procedure and orders that he first be flogged before questioning. To the Jewish crowd a few minutes earlier, Paul had emphasized his Jewishness. Now he plays the Roman card. And he asks the centurion in charge, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen Who hasn't even been found guilty? The question is a rhetorical one. Both Paul and that centurion knew the answer. It was illegal. That's why those magistrates in Philippi in chapter 16 were so alarmed when they discovered that Paul and Silas, the men they had ordered to be flogged, were Roman citizens. And Luke tells us that Lysias was alarmed that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Well, Paul avoids being flogged. But nevertheless, Lysias keeps him in custody. Lysias is keen to get to the bottom of all this. Why were these Jewish pilgrims so incensed by what Paul had said to them? And here we have it. The Romans being confronted with this new teaching, ideology, whatever you call it, and struggling to make sense of it. And Lysias decides that as this seems to be a religious problem, the best thing to do is to refer it to the Jewish religious authorities. And so in chapter 23, Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, that should ring a bell with us. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw Peter and John and the rest of the apostles before the Sanhedrin. And we saw Stephen before the Sanhedrin in chapters 6 and 7. Now it's the turn of Paul. This is the second of these five confrontations. And do you remember last week, David showed us the slide, showing what the Sanhedrin would have been like. And after emphasizing his Jewishness again as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, Paul makes his defense. It is brief and it is bold. Verse 6 of chapter 23 says this, I stand on trial Because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Full stop. Why does Paul say this? Well, if you go back to chapter 3, what did Peter tell the crowd? He said this to them. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Back in chapter 4, why were Peter and John brought before the Sanhedrin? The answer is in verse 2 of chapter 4. They, that is the Sanhedrin, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And when they were asked by the Sanhedrin by what power had they healed the crippled man, Peter replied, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Chapter 5, when all the apostles appeared before the Sanhedrin. They asserted, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And then Stephen concludes his speech at the end of chapter 7. And he tells the Sanhedrin, you are just like your fathers. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Stephen doesn't actually mention the resurrection, but the chapter ends with him seeing the risen Christ. Verse 56 of chapter 7, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so right throughout chapters 2 to 7, there has been this two-fold emphasis on the complicity of the Jews in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by the God of our fathers. And in effect, Paul is saying, this is why I am here today. It's not because I have been teaching against Judaism or because of some alleged misdemeanor in the temple." It's because of the fact that you had the Son of God put to death, and the God of our fathers raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the supreme messianic sign. It was the conclusive fulfillment of the prophecies which pointed to the Messiah. And of this resurrection, says Paul, I am yet another witness the result is uproar in the Sanhedrin and there is a violent disagreement between the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who did believe in the idea of resurrection and for a third time the Romans have to intervene and then learning of a plot to kill Paul, Lysias decides to send Paul to be tried by the governor Felix. And no less than 470 Roman soldiers are deployed to accompany and protect Paul. Might be 472 if you add on a couple of centurions. But again, we see on the one hand the relentless hostility of the Jews to Paul and his message, and on the other, the protection given to him through the agency of the Romans. Once again, as it did in chapter 11, the geography changes. Again, we leave Jerusalem, the seat of power of the Jewish religious establishment, and we move to Caesarea, to the capital of the Roman administration, in Judea. As I learned last week, it's Caesarea by the sea, as opposed to Caesarea not by the sea. And at the beginning of chapter 24, we have Paul brought before the procurator, Marcus Antonius Felix. And the third confrontation begins The setting is no longer Jewish. This is a Gentile court with a Gentile audience in the person of the Roman governor. And so that Felix has some idea of what this case is about, Lysias has written a letter to him. Lysias confirms that Paul is a Roman citizen and he describes how that he had Paul brought before the Sanhedrin. And tellingly, Lysias writes that the accusation against Paul had to do with questions about their, that is the Jews, law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. In other words, as far as Lysias is concerned, this is not really a matter for the Romans at all. In fact, this is the same situation that faced another Roman official, Gallio, in Corinth in chapter 18. What did Gallio say to Paul's accusers? Since the complaint involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Now, Felix could well have taken the same approach as Gallio, but he didn't. Now, why is that? And surely the answer must be that Felix had to hear this matter because that would embed Paul's case in the Roman legal system. And that was to be the means by which Paul would eventually end up In Rome. What had the Lord said to Paul after his appearance before the Sanhedrin? Verse 11 of chapter 23 Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And here again, we see the all powerful Roman administrative machine, unchallenged in its authority, but being used by God to fulfill his purposes. Five days later, Paul's accusers arrive in Caesarea, and his trial before Felix begins. The Jewish leaders are represented by a lawyer called Tertullus, and Tertullus accuses Paul of three things— Now this is interesting, at least I think it's interesting. The complaint of the crowd in Jerusalem had been that Paul had taught against our people and our law and this place, meaning the temple. Now Tertullus has to be careful. He knows that if he frames the charges too narrowly, he runs the risk of Felix, following the example of Gallio. He can't afford to give Felix the chance to say, this is a religious dispute. It's got nothing to do with me. Go away and sort it out yourselves. And so Tertullus widens the charges. And we move from a complaint about teaching against the Jews and their law and the temple to an allegation verse 5 of chapter 24, that this man is a troublemaker stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Now this is dangerous because it was an undeniable fact that wherever Paul went, trouble followed, even though the trouble was not of his making. The one thing the Romans would not tolerate was a disturbance of the peace. Tertullus further alleges that Paul was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now this is serious as well. If it could be proved that Paul had helped to form a new sect or cult outside Judaism, it would be illegal. And this new sect or cult would not have the right to the protection which Roman law extended to Judaism. And thirdly, Paul is accused of desecrating the temple. Now here it's important to have a little knowledge of the layout of the temple. But very basically, think of two courts. The outer court known as the court of the Gentiles, to which the Gentiles could have access. And the inner court known as the court of Israel from which the Gentiles were prohibited on pain of death. The two courts were separated by a stone wall four and a half feet high and along its length were notices in Greek and Latin warning any Gentile from going beyond this point. And for this offence, The Romans had allowed the Jewish authorities to retain the right to impose the death penalty. If Paul were to be found guilty of permitting a Gentile to be in the court of Israel, the fact that he was a Roman citizen would not have saved him. We don't have time to deal with Paul's defense other than to say that he denied simply causing any disturbance as to the charge of forming a sect, yes, he was a follower of the way, but it's not a sect. He worships the same God as his accusers. He believes in the same law and the prophets as they do. And as to the charge of sacrilege in the temple, he went to the temple to offer sacrifices, and when he did so, he was ceremonial clean. And then he goes on the offensive and says, and by the way, it is a fundamental rule of Roman law that if someone is accused of wrongdoing, his accusers must be in court. Where are these Jews from Asia who have made these allegations? And as though for those of my accusers who have bothered to turn up, what possible thing could they say I have done wrong apart from my belief? In the resurrection. In other words, this was indeed a dispute about theology, if you like, about religious matters, just as Lysias had said in his letter to Felix. Felix should have dismissed the case, but he adjourns it on the pretext that he needs to consult further with Lysias and orders that Paul be kept in custody. Luke tells us that the real reason was that Lysias was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. And Paul spends the next two years in prison. And at the end of those two years, Felix is recalled to Rome and is replaced as procurator by Festus. Festus wastes no time in meeting the Jewish religious leaders, he knows the importance of establishing good relations with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. For the Roman administration and for the Jewish religious authorities, each had a vested interest in keeping in with each other. And when Festus and the Jewish leaders do meet, the Jews immediately ask Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Well, the reason, of course, for this request is that they wanted to ambush and kill Paul on the journey between Caesarea and Jerusalem. Festus doesn't go along with this at first. He returns to Caesarea. He convenes his court, and Paul is brought before him. And here we have Paul's second trial before a procurator. This is confrontation Number four. Luke is very brief about the allegations against Paul. He just says the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. And Paul's defense is equally brief I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus then asks Paul if he's prepared to go to Jerusalem to stand trial. Paul knows he will not get a fair trial and we have his dramatic words. I appeal to Caesar. Now that solves a problem for Festus because he no longer has to decide the case but it also presents him with another problem Because as well as sending Paul to Rome, he will have to send with him an explanatory statement detailing the case against the prisoner. And the problem for Festus is how does he explain to Caesar what this case is all about? Unfortunately for Festus, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive on a courtesy visit. Agrippa is something of an expert in Jewish religion and customs, and Festus mentions Paul's case to him. Revealingly, Festus says that Paul's accusers did not charge him with any of the crimes he had expected. Instead, says Festus, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. And here again is that complete lack of understanding that the Romans had about the gospel. And Festus candidly admits to Agrippa, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. Agrippa is intrigued and says he would like to hear this man for himself. And the hearing takes place the next day. Confrontation number five. Here in chapter 26 is the climax of this whole series of encounters. And in this last dramatic encounter, Paul is now standing before the representatives of both the Jewish and the Roman establishments. Before Jew and Gentile. Now this is not a trial This is not like the hearings before Felix and Festus alone. Those were technical hearings in which Paul had to answer specific charges. This is an inquiry, and the importance of that is that Paul had free reign to say whatever he wanted. And Paul's speech in chapter 26 draws together many of the elements and the themes which we have seen before. And so Paul refers to his upbringing in the strictest sect in Judaism, the Jewish hope of a Messiah, the teaching of the Old Testament that the Messianic age would be preceded by a resurrection of the dead. He talks about his obsessive persecution of the church, his conversion on the Damascus Road, the mission given to him by the Lord Jesus, his obedience in preaching to Jew and Gentile alike. And in all this, verses 22 and 23, he was saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. This is the point that Paul had made in the synagogue In Pisidian Antioch, in chapter 13, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. This is what he had preached in the synagogue in Thessalonica, in chapter 17. On three Sabbath days, He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying that this gospel is not something new or man-made. It is the fulfillment in Christ of what had been promised in the Scriptures And the scene ends with the reactions of Festus and Agrippa. For Festus, what Paul was saying was just madness. He had no idea of what Paul was talking about. Agrippa had some idea. He knew the scriptures. And Paul knew that. Paul asks him, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then comes Agrippa's famous reply, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Commentators differ as to what exactly Agrippa meant by that statement. But whatever he meant, it was the judgment of both Festus and Agrippa that this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa adds this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But even if they could have acquitted Paul, and even if they could have set him free, in effect Festus and Agrippa still rejected his message. And that is what links these five confrontations or encounters together. The rejection of the gospel. We're almost finished. We have the refusal by the Jewish people to entertain the idea that the Gentiles could share in what they saw as their exclusive inheritance. We have the hatred of the Jewish religious leaders for those who fearlessly held them to account for the death of the Messiah and their refusal to face up to the reality and the implications of the resurrection. We have the tragedy of Felix who was well acquainted with the way and who listened to Paul in private as he spoke to him about faith in Jesus but he chose to put personal advancement above everything else. We have the reaction of Festus who dismissed it simply as madness. We have the response of Agrippa who it seemed could not make the connection between what was written in the prophets and the Christ who was the fulfillment of those prophecies. And this range of reactions was summed up by Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Jews demand miraculous signs And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And as one of those whom God had called, Paul had experienced that power in his life. That same power with which God had raised Jesus from the dead. That same power which had transformed Saul, the fanatical persecutor of the church, full of zeal for the traditions of his fathers, into Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And in this power, he would now take the message of the gospel right to the center of the Roman world, to Rome itself. And fittingly, it was to the Christians living in Rome that Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And with these words, we're done. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the reverent attention to it. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is made available to everyone, irrespective of race, religion, ethnicity, or any other division. And we thank you that in this day of grace, this gospel is still freely available to those who believe. We ask for your blessing now upon us, Lord, as we part in the name of the Lord Jesus.